All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. You know, I get people asking me a lot, what should I do? What can I do? And what I remind people is that there's A, no silver bullet, and B, is that understanding the world is the first step to changing it. It's why we spend so much time on the conversations on the podcast, helping think through the news and helping think through some of the most important issues of the day, whether it's healthcare, taxes. And today we talk about civil rights and legal space. My practical advice to you would be first talk about it, that you can't change what you don't know. So the more questions you ask, the more that you do research, the more that you engage in thoughtful conversation, whether it's in person or online, like the better off you are and the better prepared you are to begin thinking about solutions. The second is that we've become addicted to critique, that it is one thing to critique the world. It's another thing to build the world. And while it's important to deconstruct and to understand at a deep level and to take apart, you do that so it sets you up to build again. So I'm excited for when we get deeper into the podcast episodes and we will have episodes solely devoted to what the solutions look like and what incredible work is happening around closing the racial wealth gap and ending mass incarceration and ending mandatory minimums and thinking about sentencing reform and bail differently and thinking about public education, that the solution part of the work, the imagination part of the work is actually some of the core part of this work. So my advice to you is don't be addicted to critique. Understand critique as a pathway to imagination and solutions, and that is its purpose. And the third is that remember that the trauma is still present, which means the work is still present. This episode of Pot Save the People is dedicated to the two Guys who lost their lives in Portland as they stepped in to confront a racist white supremacist who was threatening Muslim women. This episode is dedicated to Ricky and Talishan, Ricky Best and Talishan Meche. I dedicate this episode of the podcast to them because some people think that racism is of the past, right? That, that the core of racism was enslavement and lynching. And what we know to be true is that people with racist and hateful thoughts still exist and they still have an impact on today's world and and that the trauma that they bring into the world is still present, which means that the work of equity and the work of justice is still present. So remember that this fight is still a fight that we all are implicated in, that we are all responsible for building a better world and ask yourself, what will you do to do that? Again, welcome to Pod Save the People. And now the news with me, Brittany, and Sam. Brittany, former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama on the task force for 21st century policing. And Sam, the most incredible data scientist you'll know. It's the news. 
I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter, and I'm joined by... Hey, y'all, it's Brittany Packnett. I'm at Miss Packetti on all social media. Miss Packetti, <laughs> Samsway. Hi, this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y. I'm not Delray. I'm not D-Ray. It's DeRay. <laughs> Here we go. My first piece of news is a premium increase. Healthcare premiums are going to increase in North Carolina. It was recently announced by Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, that they intend to raise premiums by 23% next year. And they, what's interesting about this is that they explicitly said that they're raising premiums uh, by an extra about t- almost 15% because of what the Trump administration and the Republicans in Congress have been doing, creating uncertainty around Obamacare. Since so they can't get a repeal. Real people are actually going to have to pay more for health care because the insurance companies are uncertain about how much risk there's going to be next year around the subsidies they're supposed to get to cover people. Since they can't get a repeal, they're trying to sabotage it. Is that what this is? Yeah, and this is what Trump has said. He said he wanted to sabotage it. He wants it to, to die. Uh, and he's actually, what this shows is that that strategy appears to be working, at least in North Carolina. Oh, have mercy. I wish I had a more intelligent thought there. I just am like, have mercy on us all. You know, we should talk. People should be mindful of it because this is the stuff, as you said, Sam, that has real consequences for real people's lives. Uh, I, You know, from episode one of Posse of the People, when Andy talked about one in three people used to file bankruptcy because of medical bills, like that is so wild. Right. And it would be sad to go back to a time like that when we don't have to. Well, and it's the old politician's line, right, that you've heard in so many debates and commercials that people shouldn't have to choose between their groceries and their um, their medicine. Uh, and we've heard it from lots of politicians, but it took a long time for something to actually be done about it. And the trouble is what was done about it um, has yet to be truly permanent for people. And so we continue to experience these black backslides. Um, and, you know, everybody is one injury, one illness, one calamity away from this being our story, even folks who feel right now comfortably in the middle class. Right. So um, I actually Blue Cross Blue Shield is my um, is my health insurance. So I'm paying close attention to this one. You're right. And if, if you're not one illness or one injury away, you know somebody who is. That's right. That's right. And this is I didn't appreciate. I mean, I have always appreciated healthcare, but it wasn't until I quit right after the movement started that I didn't have health care mm-hmm. and I had to do the exchanges mm-hmm. and like the exchanges worked and it was fine but I went to the I was used to paying a $5 copay That's I'm right. like oh cool $5 I went to the doctor got a $300 bill and they didn't even do anything and I yeah. was like okay this <laughs> you is really, what is this you're like I didn't get a CAT scan a CT yeah, nothing <laughs> I'm thinking like some blood work it was like I literally just went for a checkup because I was like I probably should go get a checkup and it was very expensive, and I and it it was this moment that I was like, I get I get it differently, right? Like not just philosophically, yeah. but I understood it because I had always had healthcare through my employer. I'd never had to do it somewhere else, and uh, but I'm thankful that I was able to get healthcare, right? Yeah. That like that was even an option for mm-hmm. me in that moment. Sam, I I saw on Twitter that you had a very well received thread, and it was about your time in Baton Rouge. Brittany and I went Baton Rouge uh, when Alton Sterling got killed mm-hmm. right afterwards, and. I didn't spend as much time outside as I planned because I was in jail for 17 hours. Brittany was there for a couple of days before and, and worked with activists on the ground. The same activists invited you, Sam, to come out um, to to help brainstorm solutions because they have a new mayor. Can you what what how was that trip? And then what did you see? What did you yeah, learn? So, you know, as you said, I was invited to Baton Rouge um, by activists there because of the recent DOJ decision not to 
prosecute the officers who killed Alton Sterling. And there's this moment there where, you know, folks are trying to, you know, figure out, and now that the DOJ, has, that strategy has failed, sort of how to continue to push for justice uh, and accountability there uh, at the local and state level. Uh, and so I was there to support, you know, providing uh, some solutions and, and connections around those issues. And what I found there actually, you know, this is my first time in Baton Rouge, um, and the experience really was sobering in so many ways that I wasn't actually expecting. So, you know, I had been following out in Sterling case um, and the issues going on with policing there. Um, but, you know, what really struck me as soon as I got there was the issue around mass incarceration and just the, how I actually experienced it uh, in a state that is the state that has the highest incarceration rate you know, in the world, not only in the United States. Sam, what does that mean? Talk about the highest incarceration rate in the world. How is that possible? Like, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically, Louisiana has taken the war on drugs to the next level. So they lock up the highest proportion of nonviolent offenders, not just, not just folks who are convicted of violent crimes who they are incarcerating at higher rates than anyone else, but especially folks for nonviolent offenses and especially drug offenses. Uh, are being locked up at extraordinary rates, like rates three times higher than other southern states like South Carolina and Florida. Um, and what that means, like on the ground, is there are folks who are incarcerated that are actually uh, that the presence is there as soon as you're in North, as soon as you're in Louisiana. So I was there at the state capitol building. Uh, and there were prisoners who were there, um, you know, cleaning the floors and serving the food and cooking the food. Uh, it was a constant presence. There were folks in, apparently there are folks in the police station um, that are working to serve food and cook food in the cafeteria for the state police. There are folks in the governor's mansion doing the same thing. There are folks in the field. There are folks on the in, at LSU games cleaning up after those games. And so prisoners have been contracted uh, to play this huge economic role, working really for for between two and twenty cents an hour, um, and that just the feel of that, the experience of that, um, it was shocking to me. Even after seeing so much happen over the past several years in this country, like that, I was not prepared for. That is. Yeah, we, the first time you told me that we were backstage um, in New York City at the at the TechCrunch event a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, "You need to tell this story to everybody who will listen," um, because and this is this is part of the reason why we created ourstates.org, right? Because we have to recognize that the function of supremacy manifests in many places and spaces at the local, federal, and state level um, and has been going on for a very long time. Despite what, uh, like, a handful of people thought I wrote on Twitter today, I am not confused that white supremacy has been going on since the dawn of this, um, since the dawn of this country. So let me let me be extremely clear about that. Um, and this is one of the ways in which um, we see that manifested, right? That this is a system that has been going on for so long that even um, folks who know better are like... It's so entrenched. We're, it's very difficult to do something about it. It is just a reminder, too, of, of how much this country has benefited from unpaid labor or, or so lowly paid that it might as well Poorly be unpaid. Paid labor, that's right. Yeah. And I think about, I was in Montgomery at the Rosa Parks Museum, and I'll never forget there was this guy in a white jumpsuit who walked down the street, and I was like, 
you know, white jumpsuits, maybe they're coming back in the mm. style. But it was like this this one person. just. It was not this. a romp him. This is <laughs> a jumpsuit. It was not a romp him. <laughs> and I was like, that's really interesting, like delivering a newspaper. And then, but I couldn't see, I only saw the front of him. And then as he passed, it said mm. Department of Corrections. And I was like, that is wild that yeah. like prisoners are, that you have essentially created a whole new market around uh, low low paid labor like these people aren't getting paid market wages at all and that is happening in plain sight right which is which adds ultimate insult to ultimate injury that we are going to um, operate every day as if this is normal um, as if this is acceptable and look people in the face every day who who are being treated um, in incredibly inhumane ways yeah. So I'm I'm glad that you were down there to bear witness, Sam, um, in addition to the work that you were doing along with incredible activists on the ground there. Um, and that far more people know the story than than might have um, before you wrote that thread. And Sam, uh, isn't there rumored to be another video of the killing of Alton Sterling or did I misread that? Yeah, absolutely. So. One of the things, you know, at the time when Alan Sterling was killed, there were rumors flying around it that there was another video that captured um, Officer Salomon, one of the two officers uh, who killed Alan Sterling, come up immediately upon encountering Alan Sterling, come up to him and put a gun to his head and threatened to take his life. Um, and those rumors were swirling, but video was never released. Um, then the DOJ actually apparently sat down folks in the room, uh, including Alton Sterling's family, showed them the video that they have um, and, and told the story that this, in fact, did happen, that they have reviewed that, um, but that the video has not been released. And they actually made a recommendation that that officer be terminated. Uh, obviously, they don't have jurisdiction to do that. So that recommendation goes to the police department. And so now, you know, the, there's a situation where this video exists, um, you know, it has been corroborated by many, many different people, but it has not been publicly released. And the city is sort of waiting there. They haven't fired the officers. The mayor has recommended the officers be fired, but the police chief hasn't taken action. Um, and at any time, you know, there's this concern that the video could come out and, you know, folks are not, like the mayor is not, like folks are not prepared because in many cases they, um, there has not been action taken. There has not been accountability, you know, put in place. And so, you know, it's almost like the situation where, you know, folks, there's this tension uh, around what's coming next, when's it going to happen, and what's going to be done as a result. Thanks for sharing that. Um, We'll definitely be keeping our eyes peeled on what's happening in Baton Rouge. And shout out to all the activists down there, um, especially the young folks, people um, like Myra Richardson and lots of... um, high schoolers, middle schoolers, college students who are continuing to sound the alarm. Yeah, and I, you know, when I got arrested, we sued the city of Baton Rouge in a class action lawsuit, uh, one of the first at the protesters and one in a class action style in, in the movement, and we're still settling it, but it'll make sure that everybody who's arrested for a specific offense, uh, that they get their legal fees paid, that they get their bond refunded, that this is automatically expunged, so Hopeful for that to find its conclusion very soon. Brittany, what's your news? Um, Well, as I was alluding to in the conversation with Sam, uh, obviously white supremacy, oppression are not new whatsoever. Um, And I know that we have dedicated the 
I know that we've dedicated this week's episode to um, victims all over the world. Uh, this week of violence and supremacy um, in Manchester and Portland, um, right near where we are here in Maryland. Um, and I'm thinking a lot about those folks. I'm also thinking about the ways in which um, hate has become emboldened in this administration um, and that in this current era, given this uh, this latest election and campaign cycle, as well as um, this current administration, have helped embolden the kind of supremacy that has always been there, most certainly. Um, so, of course, this administration is not the virus. It's the symptom. Um, but as we continue to do the work we have over centuries to, to dissolve supremacy and oppression, I think we have to pay really close attention, A, to the effect that it's having on real people right now every single day, um, especially this uh, increased uh, culture of, of hatred and supremacy. Um, but we also have to be paying attention to all of the ways in which this administration is trying to skirt uh, responsibility for Lots of things, including apparently the Constitution. So uh, the Atlantic this week reported uh, in a headline saying that the Trump organization said it's, quote, not practical to comply with a monuments clause in the Constitution. Of course, the um, words uh, the the words that the president pledges to do at their inauguration, it's still always been his inauguration thus far, um, are to uh protect, preserve, and defend uh, the Constitution of the United States. If you are in service of nothing else, you should be in service of that. Uh, the uh, the administration said that they would donate foreign money to the U.S. Treasury, um, but essentially came out this week saying they would only do so much digging to figure out where that foreign money was coming from. So if it's coming from a government that they will um, supposedly voluntarily donate it to the U.S. Treasury, but given that they said that they are um, a service industry, they said that that would, quote, impede upon personal privacy and diminish the guest experience of our brand, essentially <laughs> to find out uh, and, and identify mm. where all of their patrons are from. Um, actually, your representative, Mr. Cummings from Baltimore, Maryland, who is the ranking member of uh, House Oversight and Government Reform, issued a statement in response basically saying um, that this is uh, a way in which foreign governments could funnel money to this to this brand, to this company, to this administration um, through other entities. Entities, but most importantly, and I used to actually staff this particular committee. Um, the most important thing here is that fundamentally, what he is saying brazenly is, I don't have to follow the Constitution, and I don't care anybody if anybody tells me that I do have to. Um, and this idea that our politicians are somehow above the law is what he is relying on people to believe. Uh, and so I am I'm deeply worried about it. But I, what I think has been good is that uh, folks from both parties, experts um, from both parties, have been clear in saying that actually, yes, this these conflict of interest things in the Constitution absolutely apply to you. You are not above the law. You are certainly not above um, our founding document. Uh, but that was another reminder that the rules are going to be made up as they go along to benefit them uh, and to benefit folks. Uh, folks like them. Um, and so I, I just think it behooves us to pay attention to all of the things that are happening um, that, quite frankly, should be at this point impeachable. Yeah, and for those of you uh, that don't know, like I did not know, the Emoluments Clause is in Article 1 of the Constitution. It's 49 words. And it says, no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept any present emolument 
office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. And, mm-hmm. and I was I was just going to add. So his attorneys are essentially saying that that clause does not apply to him. Yeah. So that is, so, you know, another example about how he's trying to skirt the rules, like you said. And yeah. it is so I'm I am interested to see the Republicans trying to try post Trump to to make any argument for like something <laughs> that, yeah, that we would consider normal. Like, I don't even yeah. know what they would say with a straight face. Like to anybody that comes next, it, like not that I am justifying anything he's doing, but it is, they have just moved so far mm-hmm. to create space for this to happen without question. And if could you imagine if Obama? It's just very far afield. I w- yes, I could not imagine it that to answer your nuts. question, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> no, you can't imagine if Obama did it because they would have impeached Obama, right? Like they would not. They would definitely have held Obama to an entirely different standard. And I think that this shows you the power of how sort of white supremacy works, right? So you have so many, I can't even, I've lost count of how many Trump administration officials have now like openly broken the law and not been arrested, Mm. not been charged, like not been jailed. There've been no accountability, just, you know, ongoing talk about whether or not they have the right to break the law. Uh, meanwhile, you have folks like Jeff Sessions, who committed perjury, which is punishable up to five years in prison, but isn't getting arrested for it, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, we need to increase mandatory minimum sentencing, directing prosecutors to lock up more black folks for drug offenses. So, like, seeing these two tracks happen in parallel, where rich white folks are committing crimes out in the open and getting away with it while directing law enforcement to arrest and incarcerate people of color, whether it's immigrants or black folks, uh, and and impose these incredibly draconian sentences on them. I think mm-hmm. that is sort of how I view this administration and how these first 120 days have gone. And this is also an alarm that I feel like we need to sound in particular to low-income people of all races, or not even low-income not super wealthy people of all races, right? Which includes everybody sitting in this room and on this call, um, um, including white people. The fact that they said it is, quote, not practical, right? Those were the exact words to sift through where all of the foreign money is coming from in order to abide by the Constitution should worry everybody. It should mean that democracy actually just doesn't matter to you. Um, and that at the end of the day, unless you are wealthy, white and a man um, and, a, and a straight cisgendered man at that, that you have um, no place of importance in this administration. And that should worry Literally all the rest of us, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you know, um, to, to borrow a phrase from Occupy, right, that is like the 99.999% of us. Um, my second piece of news is also about all of us um, uh, who care deeply about education um, and the future of this country. The Washington Post reported on um, a strategy that states, especially Oklahoma, have been using to um, deal with uh, cash-strapped budgets and budget shortfalls uh, in in terms of uh, education choices. And so there have been a number of choices, including um, getting rid of art and foreign language programs, um, not buying new textbooks, and that also means children going without textbooks at all. But most significantly, there are a number of students who are now going to school uh, for just four days a week. And research 
um, of all stripes over the last few years have shown that actually we need to increase the amount of learning time that American children are receiving right now. And in Oklahoma and other states, to be clear, um, they have been doing the exact opposite. So just to give you a, a bit of detail, in Oklahoma, they have a $900 million budget gap. Wow. Um, yeah, it is not minor at all. Um, it's due to lots of tax, cut, tax cuts over a number of years. And wow. a lot of people actually point to what's happening in Oklahoma as a sign of things to come as a cautionary tale, if you will, of this idea of small government um, and, and, and tax cuts, et cetera. Um, education funding in the state has decreased 14 percent per child since 2008. Um And salaries for teachers have not increased in that same amount of time. So that puts Oklahoma teacher salaries um, at the 49th lowest in the country. So we're experiencing a teacher shortage all around the country, but especially in Oklahoma. um, It is very difficult to attract teachers when they are making so little. Um, This budget gap means that the kind of programming um, and support that students need are not coming. And so, yeah. And so one of the solutions is uh, supposedly the solution or the solution that folks have come up with is to shorten um, the school week. I think what's fascinating about this is long term, you are helping deepen the problem that you're trying to solve. Because if you do not create an educated populace, you are ultimately not helping your economy, right? You are not going to entice industry and corporations in a capitalist society to come and invest in your community because you do not have a hireable workforce, right? You do not have an educated current or future workforce um, to make that an attractive offer. And so ultimately, this kind, these kinds of choices are doing harm to the very thing that they're trying to solve for. Um, obviously, there are severe moral implications. We talked last time about how students often have the least voice, access, and power in these situations. And so that's how we end up here. I also think it's interesting, though, because over three-fourths of Oklahoma's teachers and teachers nationwide are women. And so when we think about the, the ways in which women are often shortchanged in salary in power, in policy and advocacy, um, we see a lot of those same effects that happen to women extend to our school children. So lots happening, but uh, wow. very scary, no less. Wow. So they cut the taxes on like middle and upper income folks. And instead of they alleviated that burden and put the burden on kids. Which is happening everywhere. Right. I mean, this is not new news. This is not new action. Um and it has been happening in Oklahoma apparently for quite some time that they've been moving in this direction. But, yeah, it is so often that the first place people go and look to make budget cuts um, are in education. That's fa- fascinating because, like, Louisiana, I, I mentioned Louisiana being the number one in incarcerating folks. Two of those three people that they incarcerate are black. And Oklahoma is actually number two. So they're spending all kinds of money on prison incarcerating folks, but they're making the conscious choice that they're going to cut education mm-hmm. and it continue their investment in prisons. And I think that is also like part of the piece of even when they make budget cuts, like how do those decisions get made and what's considered a priority? The thing too is to rem- remember that this is what kids deserve to go to school, right? They deserve equal fund or e- equitable funding. And too often in these conversations, People feel like they're like begging, right? They're like, you know what? I hope that people care about my life. And then it's like, no, no, you deserve, you are asking for what is rightfully yours when we talk about equity and funding. And four days a week, and a $900 million gap is just incredible. Like, I don't know, you know, I know Chicago has a deficit, Baltimore had a deficit, 900 million is 
the operating budget alone of most uh, big school districts. So that that is sort of wild. It also has this question, too, about, uh, like Sam said and, and Brittany, like you teed off, about where our taxes go. And yeah. how do we make sure that we are tracking this before it gets so dire? Because you don't get a $900 million deficit in one year. Like, it doesn't that doesn't happen. So there are a lot of questions about, like, how did this actually get to build like this, both here and across the country? And I think that you're right, Brittany, to, to suggest that this is potentially what is to come in a lot of yeah. big cities when we think about structural deficits. Uh, to Sam's point earlier, um, there is re- – there are – Loads. There's loads and loads of research on um, exactly how much it costs to incarcerate folks versus how much it costs to properly educate children. And every single time it is more expensive to incarcerate people than it is to educate them. But to your point, Sam, we have made clear choices over decades, uh, centuries, really, about where our priorities are um, and providing equitable education to all children in all zip codes has just never been at the top of the list. I think it's especially important to note that in states like Oklahoma, where there are sizable native populations, um, native children are being educated already in cash-strapped um, Bureau of Indian Education and Bureau-run schools. Um, but there are also a lot of Native children in public schools in states like Oklahoma. And we have a treaty responsibility to Native children to educate them well um, and with equitable funding. And that is not happening all across the country. And certainly when we see cuts like this, it's definitely not happening there. Boom. That's my news. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, 
And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Um, so I will talk about two things. One is about the Confederate flag. So people, you know, what a refrain that I keep hearing is this idea that the Confederate flag is just like a symbol of the past and it's part of our history and that the Confederacy was not rooted in racism. So what I thought I'd share today is the Cornerstone speech. Brittany and Sam, have you ever heard of the Cornerstone speech? Mm, remind me. No, I hadn't heard of it either until I was prepared. <laughs> I'm over here like, mm, no, no, I? I it was it was delivered by the Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. Oh no, I do not know this in Georgia on March twenty first, eighteen sixty one. You know this, Sam? I've read about this one. Look yeah, I didn't know it was called a cornerstone speech, but I've Sam's read Sam's genuinely smarter than yeah. both of us, so it's fine. <laughs> so let me just read this part of it. He says, our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. This truth has been slow in the process of its development, like all other truths in the various departments of science. Now, there's a lot there. <laughs> a lot. A lot. <laughs> but what is definitely there is racism. <laughs> and, Good morning. Right, right. So when people talk of symbols of hate and power hate, and we know that to be true. So that was just like a history lesson. But the news is that in Alabama— they passed a law that essentially protects Confederate monuments. So the law makes it so local governments um, cannot remove the monuments, which is wild. So the bill will block local governments from removing monuments that have been on public property for more than 40 years. It also prevents renaming public schools that have stood for 40 years. There are at least nine Confederate monuments around Alabama that we that would be protected under the law, including a monument at the state capitol in Montgomery, the cornerstone of which was laid by Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Oh my, Brittany, were you were we together when we did? I'm clearly. Can you get it? Out? <laughs> I'm like, you okay? <laughs> when we did you the White House, the Confederacy of the White House, that's right behind the the state house in Montgomery. Did we go to that together where they gave us cotton? Do you remember that? I got there after you, okay. but I do. I, I, yeah, I, you know what I do remember was there was a story about uh, there was a children's book. We were there about there was a children's book together? about no. There okay. was a children's book about, um, but I know what you're talking about, and they gave cotton as a souvenir, yes. for for free, which I guess is like yes. a gift of some kind because before this, our people were picking it for free. But you know, that's beside the point. The children's book was the. the the son. They adopted a black child. That, uh, adopted is right. being said adopted, in air yes. quotes. I want yes. you everybody the to know. The book said they, were, they, they adopted this This was an child. enslaved child. And basically there's a whole children's yes. book indoctrinating young kids with the idea that there's this happy enslaved child that was just loved on by this white slave-owning family the, um, the, that was the, the given Davises. at the same place. The yes, Davises. The, the Davises. Yeah. Yes. So behind the state house in Montgomery, or like to the side of it, is the White House of the Confederacy. I don't know why I thought we were there. They do give you cotton, which is why. 
wild and they have this book that makes slavery seem like this really great adoption agency for black kids or enslavement like an adoption agency. But so my news, first piece of news was that Alabama passed a law that protects the monuments and doesn't allow for schools to be renamed that have been around for 40 years. Which, you know, and this is um, I I often use the word white lash. Um, I got it from Van Jones. Right. But I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to own the word, uh, but I think about uh, when we started to um, videotape what was happening to us um, on the lines of protest and the killings of black and brown people were more often being videotaped, um, that state legislators all around the country decided to increase traffic in laws um, to prevent uh, citizens from being able to film the police, right? Um, so there, there is always a response. Whenever people fight back against oppression, there is always a response from people for whom uh, oppression is beneficial. And that is exactly what this this is, right? This is saying where we were entrenched in this, um, but apparently we weren't entrenched in it enough. So we need to preserve the Confederacy, even though the Confederacy lost the war, uh, and make sure um, that the kind of culture that we want to— uh, reign supreme in our community is is immovable. It is interesting, too, the way that, and I know Brittany is saying the iconography of hate works is, um, I remember being in Montgomery and the Alabama River is right there and, and there's a street called Commerce Street and you're like, well, why is it called Commerce Street? And it's called Commerce Street because that is where the enslaved were marched mm-hmm. down because they were the commerce mm-hmm. and it ends in Market Street and it's like, why is it called Market Street? Because that's where the slave market was. was. And like, you just don't realize how much of the iconography of hate is actually just deeply embedded into this country. That's and right. people say to us like, well, this is history. You should, and you're like, well, whose history is it? This is not a part of the history that, A, we should be proud of. It is right. a part that we should understand so we don't repeat it. Right. But not one that we need to put on a pedestal literally yeah. in terms of monuments and something that we should revere. I've been thinking a lot, a lot about the iconography of hate, quite frankly, um, in the in the last 48 hours. But I've also been thinking intentionally for my, the sake of my own spirit and my own sanity about love and about, you know, you often say that we we often talk about the fact that we have not become the thing that we are fighting. Um, and I think that that's so critically important. And it's sometimes too mushy for people to talk about. But when we think about love being a powerful form of resistance, um, black families and couples fighting to stay together, fighting to find one another when black people were not allowed to be married if it weren't for the sponsorship of a white person. And that was only in a few places. Um, when we think about all of those things, love really is resistance in that way. And I'm I'm glad to see stories like the ones that are being told uh, in film and on television, et cetera, give um, give way to a different conversation about what love looks like in black spaces so that we are not just always filled with the iconography of hate. The other thing that comes to mind, though, um, is that when you think about the Confederacy, right, like they lost the war. And often when we have conversations about Native peoples in this country, people will say, well, they need to get over it because they were conquered. Well, A, that was genocide, right? So this is a completely different conversation. Um, and and um, and B, um, the hypocrisy, right, of, of you telling one group of people that they need to get over their conquering, but uh, in the same token, by the same token, you want to preserve monuments to a fallen government that 
attempted to split this country in order to maintain uh, an economy based on on enslaved labor. Um, so that irony and, and hypocrisy often comes up for me. But um, it's it's really it's really a shame to see this because there are just so many children of color still and, and white children who this harms too, um, who are still living and learning um, in states like Alabama that are determined not to let this go. Sam, anything on the iconography of hate? Yeah, I think we need to replace the iconography of hate with the iconography of love, right? So not only should we be taking down these monuments to hate, but we should be building up things that commemorate, just like what you said, Brittany, like the uh, the museum, the National Museum of African American History and Culture does so well, of you know preserving those elements of the struggle of love and how it has persisted. Like, how come our built environment doesn't uh, contain monuments to that, but instead contain monuments to hate. So, like, how do we replace that intentionally, um, even in the context of the current political climate? And the iconography of resistance, you know, like people, mm-hmm. you feel like you're, like, you don't realize how much has happened before you because you're right, like, the built environment doesn't actually speak to that, but it speaks to so many things and that this has always been about choices. What is also interesting about the Confederacy is, as Brittany said in that speech, the cornerstone speech, is that people, I've heard white people say, like, that, you know, people worked hard to build wealth. And it's like, you, you actually didn't, you didn't work hard to build this wealth. Like, this country, white people in this country did not work hard to build this wealth. People did work very hard. Yes. <laughs> it was not you. You <laughs> right. know what I mean? And people sold <laughs> mortgages and, and bonds and insurance on enslaved people right. to build the banks on Wall Street. Right. and to Correct. like like th- uh, Those people worked very hard. Very hard. You for exactly actually. nothing. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah. So when people talk right. about this, like this legacy of wealth that like their families worked for, and you're like, eh, I don't know. That's true. <laughs> let's right? really let's really do the research on that. Yeah, your family did something, but it was not like the labor that actually allowed this to happen. And we need to have a whole episode about capitalism and we do what we, we need do. to do. Um, but that's that. So I'll move on to the second piece of news about Betsy DeVos, our uh, heroic uh, secretary of who knows what, because she doesn't know much education. But when pressed at a recent um, at a recent hearing about uh, discrimination, there was a representative, Catherine Clark from Massachusetts. She asked her essentially if a, if a voucher school and remember vouchers are taking public money and either through credits, some sort of subsidy, allowing those students to go to private or parochial schools. If one of those schools said that they would not take uh, gay students or black students, would that be okay? Like if they got federal money, would DeVos allow discrimination to happen in those schools or would she uh, say that discrimination was not okay? And DeVos essentially said, at the end she goes, I go back to the bottom line is that we believe parents are the best equipped to make choices for their children's schooling and education decisions and too many children are trapped in schools that don't work for them. We have to do something different. We have to do something different than continuing a top-down, one-size-fits-all approach. And that is the focus. And states and local communities are best equipped to make decisions. Now, again, we think that protecting people from discrimination is actually a really good thing, that that is a one-size-fits-all approach that should be... You know, something that we hold dear, just like we don't think people should be enslaved anymore. If, that, if you call that a one-size-fits-all approach, then, like, we're fine with that. Basic premise. These talking points, you know, we fundamentally believe, and I'll stop because Brittany and Sam have much more insightful things to say about this, but uh, fundamentally believe that no body should be able to discriminate, especially schools and organizations that receive money from all of our tax dollars. And the discrimination is like a is like the floor, not the ceiling, right? That, like, That's it's right. the most basic 
thing. And Brittany said a while ago that, like, remember that states' rights always is like a bellwether term for something else. It's always a dog whistle term for something else. But I'll turn it over to them. I mean, that's the point I was going to reemphasize, right? Um, That states' rights have not historically protected marginalized people. Um, And let's be very clear, states are using their power to discriminate against marginalized people as we speak. We can look at North Carolina as a perfect example in everything from voting rights to um, the so-called bathroom bills and the dignity of trans students um, to uh, marriage equality and, and, or or rather, LGBTQ equality. Um, States in particular, as we've been talking about this whole time, Oklahoma, Alabama, um, are, are, not doing the fundamental work of protecting the most vulnerable and the most marginalized. History tells us that time and time and time again. That is why a federal Department of Education exists <laughs> uh, in part uh, to ensure that things like Title I and Title VII and Title IX um, protect all students around the country. So, no, I absolutely do not agree um, that it is up to states and states that are better equipped to protect and serve all students. If states were better equipped to protect and serve all students, then all students would be protected and served right now. Correct. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like this idea, uh, like what they would call like white identity politics, right? So you're you're talking about equity as if it's a burden. So, you know, our parents should get to choose to go, for their kids to go to whatever school they want to go to. Parents make the best choices. And parents don't want to be, you know, burdened by having to send their kids to school with people who don't look like them, uh, or who aren't the same, you know, don't have the same beliefs as them, uh, or, you know, same sexual orientation. Like that's somehow a burden that the federal government should allow people uh, to discriminate based on. I think that's sort of the ideology behind this that's so dangerous because, you know, if you can make the case to, to white folks that this is such a burden then they're going to be like, well, you know, maybe we don't need to have these types of protections. Maybe we don't need to have the Civil Rights Act. You know, we don't need the Voting Rights Act. We don't need all of these things that were put in place because actually, like, people needed to be pushed on things that they were doing wrong. And, like, that isn't a burden. That's the necessary work that needs to happen to get to equity. And I think that that's where this administration, that's the, the party line that they're pushing to allow people uh, to continue to discriminate, to bring forms of discrimination back that have heretofore, you know, been reduced and mitigated. And I think this is in part evidenced by the recent hire that was made in the Department of Education's Civil Rights Department. Um, I can't remember the woman's name, but I remember reading articles that she had published um, in undergrad, um, articles that uh, uh, went for the idea that, um, for example, to— um, to really support women's rights is to not be a feminist or um, claims that she was discriminated against as a white student um, for um, things like affirmative action, et cetera. And so if that's the if that is who is managing civil rights abuses at the Department of Education, I remain worried. You know, it is maybe one 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 day soon. I'm going to write. I can't believe it's only been 120 something days. I'm exhausted. Is uh, in my head, I've written this piece called. The hundred days of our lives, like the hundred. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. Yeah. Hundred days of our lives. Oh, you should also add something about how we're living in another world. That'd be good. You could just keep going with the soap opera puns. Whoever's listening to this, do not take my um, <laughs> do not take my uh, article title. Uh, but I've written it. One of your trolls is on it already. Right, one of my trolls, <laughs> already, they've already pitched it. 
Um, but it is, in, you know, I said this before, I'll say it again, is that before this election and Brittany, yeah, I remember when we met with Hillary in Cleveland and there was all this talk. And Sam, we've talked about it too, is that people are like the president, the federal government, it doesn't really matter, right? Everything is local. Everything is local. And that is organizing is local. Most organizing happens at the local level, even for national organizations. But politics actually happens at every level. And politics is a conversation about power and uh, impact. And, uh, you know, we're seeing in a very painful day-by-day stroke what mm-hmm. the federal government can actually do and what the— and what the impact is there. And this is a great example. Like we we rely, you know, we've been in education for a while, mm-hmm. Brittany. Uh, we rely on the federal government to be to be the the body that will come in and say, like, you know, there's a civil, there's discrimination happening in this district or da-da-da-da because they're the federal government. And it is scary to see that go away so quickly. That's the news. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And next, a conversation between me and Vanita Gupta, the former head of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, appointed by Attorney General Eric Holder. Before that, she was a deputy legal director at the ACLU, and prior to that, she was an associate counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She has a new role that starts soon and she'll talk to us about that too so vanita i'm excited that you're here with me today on pod save the people we met uh, in the white house not too long ago we were together for a couple of those meetings with president obama and and many convenings around uh, criminal justice so thanks for being here today thanks i'm really excited to be here to thanks so you led the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. And I remember visiting you in your office. And if I'm correct, that was Hoover's old office, wasn't it? It was. Uh, you can imagine the irony of the former deputy legal director legal director of the ACLU now occupying J. Edgar Hoover's old office. But yes, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department is in J. Edgar Hoover's old office. And can you just explain, like, quickly, what does a civil rights division of the DOJ do? I know that the the Ed Department, I think, has a civil rights division, too. Uh, but but yours seems to be, uh, like, the main one in the country. What does the civil rights division do? The 
civil rights division of the U.S. Department of Justice enforces all of the federal civil rights statutes um, uh, in the country. And these, these are laws that Congress has enacted. So things like the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, all of that landmark legislation that came out of uh, the civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, and then much more beyond and more recently with the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, for instance. Um, those are all laws that the Civil Rights Division enforces. So, it you know, the work of the Civil Rights Division in a lot of ways touches every aspect of, of American life, from education to housing, uh, equity to uh, hate crimes, uh, prosecutions, uh, you know, ensuring that police departments are engaged in constitutional policing. There's uh, uh, criminal prosecutions of corrections officers and law enforcement officers who violate the law. So it's it's across, it's a pretty wide gamut uh, that I think really touches every community in this country. Now, are, does every federal agency also have a civil rights division or or did I just make that up? So every federal agency uh, has an office of, for civil rights, and the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department, though, does have a coordinating function. To it, and mm-hmm. there's a section at the Civil Rights Division that actually uh, is meant to coordinate the work across agencies, and and the reason for that is to ensure that there are common civil rights priorities uh, across. Uh, the federal government kind of administration to administration. And um, and so that's how that is structured. So the Department of Education, for instance, had a really terrific uh, Office of Civil Rights led by Catherine Lehman when I was at the Justice Department. And we did sometimes joint investigations. Other times there was kind of technical assistance. Sometimes it was issuing guidances, joint guidances and policy documents. And that's that's kind of how the division relates to the other offices for civil rights and in other federal agencies. And you led the Civil Rights Division when the Department of Justice came out with the protections for transgender students, didn't you? I did, yes. Um, we, I was at the Civil Rights Division uh, at a time, I think, of great change and movement in the LGBT movement. And one of the things that we knew was going to happen after we won the fight for gay marriage, really you know, fight that had been, you know, animated by incredible advocacy and activism uh, outside of government, but then obviously had a had a deep influence on, on what was happening inside government. But we knew once we won that fight that we were likely to see a backlash and um, likely to see states enacting anti-LGBT provisions. And unfortunately, we were right, and um, and we saw the state of North Carolina enact HB2 and felt very strongly that the Justice Department needed to uh, stand up against that kind of uh, law that violated um, federal civil rights laws. But even as we were kind of thinking about it, it was also at a time where we had spent many months receiving requests from school districts and administrators about how to best accommodate transgender students and transgender youth, how to protect them from bullying and harassment uh, and and the like. And so culminating in many, many months of work, the Department of Education and the Justice Department issued 
uh, gu- guidance um, on this. It didn't enunciate any new law, but it clarified the law. And uh, in short order, we were sued by, I think it was around 23 states, but it is it is, uh, and it's a guidance that was very quickly retracted in this administration. But I think um, despite that retraction, its impact really endures, and a lot of schools are deeply committed to ensuring that they are safe environments for all for all of our children. And what did the guidance do that, that didn't exist before? I, I, I remember that moment, and I remember Attorney General Lynch's speech vividly, and I remember your statements that day as well. But what did the guidance around protections for transgender students do that didn't exist before? Sure. So the day that we stood up at the press conference was the day that we announced the lawsuit against North Carolina's HB2 law. It was just days later that we were able finally, after so many months, to get the transgender um, uh, the guidance out for school districts and school administrators. That guidance, you know, we there's a lot of guidance that gets issued by federal agencies and by the Justice Department. That particular guidance was seeking to provide assistance to these school districts, to teachers, to administrators um, on the the legal protections, the federal civil rights legal protections for transgender students, and to articulate the responsibilities of these schools to ensure that transgender youth, like all youth, are able to go to school free from harassment, bullying, and violence, and are able to be fully integrated uh, into the school, meaning that if the only accommodation for a transgender student to go to the bathroom is a bathroom that is like two miles uh, away from the center of campus, that that is obviously, uh, you know, an exclusionary an exclusionary rule. It was much bigger than bathroom access, um, but it was it was aimed at providing that kind of guidance. Uh, and you know, again, guidances never create their own legal obligations. They are merely kind of clarifications of existing legal protections. But it certainly, you know, uh, sent off a furor among uh, some state officials. Uh, around the country and and created a pretty active uh, font of litigation at the justice department um uh, as soon as soon as we issued as soon as we issued it now i want to talk about the police in a second but what what would be the impetus for the sessions uh, doj retracting that guidance like what is the win there why would you why would anybody roll back protections for students yeah, you know, that's a really good question, but unfortunately, you know, it is about the politicization of these issues and these communities. I mean, it's that's what I think is more painful about the retraction. In many ways entirely predicted, right? I mean, I was sitting in the Justice Department after the election kind of assuming that there would be a retraction. Um and maybe I should have hoped for better, but but that's what that was. It is to me the retraction is mean spirited. Um, it is a. I mean, everyone should want all of our children to be protected in this country when they go to school. Uh, and I, I think it really was that these issues had become deeply politicized and were being used throughout the election to foment the base. I've had people say. How, why did you issue this guidance during the election? Um, did you not think about the ramifications? I had other people saying, well, could, if you had predicted the backlash or you knew about it, would you have issued it? But here's the thing, DeRay, and I know you know this, but um, 
protecting people's civil rights and ensuring that everyone is treated with the dignity that we as Americans, uh, you know, believe is important to our core values. There, in, in terms of ensuring that marginalized and vulnerable groups are actually protected, there often is a, uh, often these issues are unfortunately politicized, have been in our history. They create a backlash. Um, and, and so in some ways, the kind of withdrawal was predicted, as I said, uh, and it's the unfortunate result that so much of the high-profile work that comes out of the civil rights division that is most forceful and often is upstream to protect and ensure that the Constitution, you know, is you know that we are living up to the ideals of our Constitution. It often does produce this kind of backlash, and it's short-term. Either I think there's no question that on LGBT rights, we are seeing this now that there's been tremendous move, and that we are on the right side of history. Um, but, but, you know, there are these moments where our history does not, is not linear towards progress and there are these setbacks, but we need to continue to fight, uh, to ensure that everyone is protected pursuant to the law, laws and constitution. Now, well, Nate, I think all of us will have to pay attention to see what other things this, the sessions crew, uh, rolls back. I was particularly shocked that this is one of the first things they did, but you and I came to know each other first because of Ferguson. So you got a, you, you were appointed in your role right after Mike Brown was killed. Uh, I was a protester, uh, in the first wave of protests in Ferguson. Now I've learned a lot more about the police uh, since then and about the laws. Can you help me understand why so few officers are ever uh, prosecuted or indicted at the federal level? Like what, why? Yeah, you know, I will say I had my own education coming into the civil rights division um, in that role and understanding these issues. So for one thing, the, the federal law, there's one federal law that the Justice Department has to prosecute officers accused of violating the con- people's constitutional rights. And it's 18 U.S.C. 242. It carries the highest uh, criminal intent threshold of in, in criminal law. It requires being able to establish that uh, that the officer was acting willfully with the willful intent, the specific intent to violate a person's constitutional rights when the when the act occurred, and. Um, and that is a very high bar. That means that, you know, saying that the officer was reckless in approaching the scene or in approaching the, the, the person in question, recklessness does not cut it. Negligence does not cut it. It means that that person literally had the very subjective specific intent to kill the person or to shoot them or, um, or to violate their rights. And um, the other piece of that is not only does the law does the law carry a very high burden, and the states, I will say, um, have many more options to charge in these kinds of cases than the federal government does. But there's also a built-in bias, and it's a cultural bias in our country about who you believe and what you who you believe when they're on the stand. And this has been studied over and over again, but federal prosecutors who do this work, and it's a very small bar, it's a very specialized area for the the criminal civil rights prosecutors in the civil rights division and some of those folks who are in US attorneys offices around the country. But they are very acutely aware of the built-in bias towards believing a police officer on the stand versus 
uh, witnesses who may be, you know, asserting other things. And it's why in these cases, it's it's vitally important in many instances to be able to have officers who are also on the scene kind of, um, you know, uh, be willing to testify against the, the officer who's a defendant. And uh, because the cultural bias towards believing these officers is, is so incredibly strong against the word of, of lay folks, and especially, I think, people of color and African-American men, and even more particularly. And those things are the, the, the ethical duty for federal prosecutors is to only charge uh, where there is a, you know, where they meet a substantial likelihood of being able to succeed in proving up the case and the prosecution. And so all of that plays a role in how hard it is not only to charge these cases, because actually the Civil Rights Division, despite this high standard, has charged in, you know, in at the last several years, hundreds of these cases. But we had cases where literally there was the the act was caught on videotape from start to finish and jurors acquitted the officers. And you can't, you know, we had to dissect it. We were sometimes, I remember sitting with some of the most experienced criminal civil rights prosecutors at the division and our hands were in our heads because it was incontrovertible evidence. And yet the jury believed the testimony of the officer in question or officers in question about the subjective intent. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to overcome. Is there is there a chance? Like, how would we change the bar to be more reasonable so that officers could actually be held to some sort of standard? What's that? Would that be Congress? Would that be an administration? Well, for federal prosecutions, it's Congress. We, you know, the Civil Rights Division only enforces the laws that Congress enacts, uh, and. That's about whether, you know, there's a desire uh, and a move to to have a federal statute that has a lower standard of, of proof to reach more cases where we where people think it they should. But on the other hand, there is a state system, right? Like the federal system conceptually in these cases is supposed to be a backstop. Uh, and it's supposed to come in where there's a significant federal interest or that is not being met. Um, through through the the state system or where there you know traditionally historically has been a bias in the state systems and the like, so the states have state laws that are much more varied and numerous um, options for charging. What we know to be the case in too many places is that there's also a built-in bias where the district local district attorney's offices work every day are very close have very close relationships with the police department in question, and it can uh, it can have an influence on whether a DA is going to charge. We've seen now, and you know this, across, around the country, some really significant local DA races that have turned because I think the movement for Black Lives and other activists have really been pushing and changing uh, the way people have been thinking about this, but but holding district attorneys to account through local elections for ignoring uh, uh, or or um, not paying attention, not giving the right kind of attention to uh, police misconduct cases. Like Kim Fox, right? Yeah. Kim Fox in Chicago? Yes. Who else? Uh, you know, there's a number of places. There's Philadelphia most recently, which is an interesting kind uh, of yes. development with a civil rights lawyer becoming 
a district attorney. There's Houston. There are, um, Kim Fox is definitely um, an example of that. And, and so I think that there's a sense that if district attorneys are not doing the work of accountability and holding people accountable for all communities, um, that there's an electoral process to engage with to, to ensure accountability. And that's something that I think is, um, it's, it's a newer kind of bank of this work of the reform effort uh, to ensure that there's, that there's accountability for all communities. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Now, one of the things that I didn't know until the protest started, I'd never heard of civil asset forfeiture. Like, I, I didn't know, and, and correct me if I'm saying this incorrectly, uh, that if the government believes that you are, that you've profited illegally, that they can just take your asset, like they can take your car or they can take money, and that it actually becomes property of the government, that it's not like sitting in an evidence room somewhere. Um, and obviously, as activists, we have huge problems with this because the police can, uh, can come up with suspect reasons to just seize people's assets. I, I thought that under the Obama administration, there were some efforts put in place to to clamp down on how civil asset forfeiture worked so that it wouldn't create an incentive for police departments to just seize things from uh, from citizens. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so there was a review in the Obama administration of these practices um, for for DOJ, and it's this is an issue that is actually brings the right and left together. I mean, a lot of criminal justice issues right now are bringing the right and left together. Although you couldn't tell from from Jeff Sessions and, and his Justice Department right now, but um, civil asset forfeiture I think raises a lot of concerns because the standard for seizing a person's assets uh, in many states is very, very low. And in many places, it's just if you, if a police department or police officer feels that by a preponderance of the evidence, uh, the assets were somehow engaged in criminal activity upon arrest, meaning pre, you know, pre-conviction, pre any 
uh, judicial establishment of guilt or innocence, they can seize your assets uh, and, um, and and keep them forever. And you can understand why that would offend libertarian sensibilities. Um, <laughs> there's also, it's been a concern for civil rights folks too, because the vast majority of people who are coming into contact with the arrest system and the criminal justice system are um, are people of color. And so there has been a movement over the last several years led by the states uh, in some key states to both increase the standard of proof that's required. In some places, you have to have been convicted of a crime before your assets are actually seized um, to really ensure that uh, that there isn't a profit motive for over-arresting people and for um, for ensuring that there's some process and due process for people who encounter um, who encounter the system. And it's it's it is a work in progress. My understanding is that there are a number of states that that have successfully done those reforms, but there are many others that are um, that still have a lot of work to do on that front. And let me just add one thing about that, which people sometimes forget, is that the funds will go in some places directly back into the police department, um, which really incentivizes this behavior and this kind of uh, collection and can incentivize the um, the over-arresting or kind of excessive use of arrest to actually fund their own police department. So, Yeah, it is. It's wild that the police have such discretion in some places to just like seize your assets, like take your car, take things that they thought were involved in a crime before you're even convicted of anything. Now, Sessions has recently uh, released two memos, I think they are called, or whatever the equivalent of an order is. One saying that he doesn't believe in consent decrees anymore, and another asking for the most severe uh, punishment to be sought in cases. Can you, since you were in the DOJ, can you give me like a quick a synopsis of what those memos say, what's at stake, and then uh, what we can do? Sure. So the first one is that you're alluding to is the memo that he issued uh, to do a quote-unquote review of the existing police department consent decrees. Um, and he issued this a, a couple of, or maybe a month or six weeks ago. That memo in a lot of ways to me is more posturing and bluster than anything, but it's not without its own consequences. I say that it's a bit of posturing because the consent decrees that exist, and mind you, there are 15 of them that exist out of uh, out of uh, eight, 16 to 18,000 police departments that exist. So we are talking a tiny number of police departments are under a DOJ consent decree. But those are those are documents and agreements that have been approved by a federal court and are being overseen by a federal judge, an Article Three federal judge. The Justice Department cannot unilaterally undo them. Uh, it would require certainly, uh, you know, it could be that the Justice Department decides to file a motion with the court seeking to close one of these things out upon review, but cannot do this unilaterally. And those consent decrees in the vast majority of instances have been cooperatively negotiated with the city in question and um, and are now lodged with the court. And so, you know, the, the memo makes a lot of noise around 
that the consent decrees increase crime rates, that they lower police morale. I have not seen any data produced by the Justice Department or the Attorney General to that effect. Um, uh, and I think it's really deeply concerning that the Attorney General, who claims to care so much about local control in a place like Baltimore, went against the wishes and will of the police commissioner and the mayor, um, suggesting that, you know, the Justice Department should try to delay slash undo the the consent decree that had been negotiated while the mayor and the police commissioner kept asserting why they thought it was so necessary for their city. Uh, and ultimately, the federal judge uh, that it was um, had been followed with saw it for what it was and said, no, we're going to proceed. And so that memo and that review, I think, is more signaling uh, to um, you know, maybe some of the police unions and some other folks to say, oh, I'm going to do this by way of kind of supporting you all, but without data to back up why it's actually needed. And ironically, uh, in many of those cities, the unions understand and have been a part, at least in Baltimore and in Chicago, a part of wanting to have certain reforms happen. Um, and and so to me, it was much more about kind of um, – uh, rhetoric uh, that I think is ultimately damaging since these processes are really important for rebuilding trust between communities and police departments. And a lot of folks in law enforcement uh, understand that and have been speaking out um, to protect that work. In the sentencing and, realm... And the consent decrees, you know, what's so interesting about them is that people forget that the only way they can come to exist is when there's been a documented pattern and practice of behavior. So like in Baltimore, the report that you guys put out was so clear that there were things and deep things that needed to be worked on. And in Ferguson, which is one of the most aggressive, uh, aggressive consent decrees that exist, it was also clear that there were, that there were fees being taken for people that were unjust, that they were sticking dogs on people. Like these things are deep. It's not clear that Sessions has read the consent decrees. Um, And I agree with you that this seems to be a lot of posturing. But what were you going to say about the second uh, the second memo? Well, um, the the second memo, the sentencing memo, is uh, you know this memo that he issued two weeks ago, I think, is very deeply troubling. Um, it's a memo that is directed at U.S. attorneys' officers, offices, federal prosecutors around the country, uh, to undo. Attorney General Eric Holder's Smart on Crime initiative, which really was seeking to uh, focus federal resources on serious crimes, violent crimes, and to reduce the levels of incarceration uh, and the the uh, that have for so long in this country really um, created a, a situation where we have five percent of the world's population, but twenty five percent of the world's prison population. The federal system had a role to play in that. And, um, you know, we've had a, an addiction to incarceration for several decades now, and there's been a push around the country and states around the country, conservatives uh, and uh, progressives kind of jointly uh, working towards reforms to ease the reliance on incarceration to better protect communities of color and protect public safety in um, more productive and humane ways. This memo was seeking is directing federal prosecutors, on the other hand, to charge uh, the highest charge that that they can. So to use their discretion to go in the opposite direction, it's really a throwback to the 1980s to when the war on drugs was 
at its peak. And what, you know, we've heard the attorney general in speeches uh, recently invoke literally 1980s rhetoric, quoting Nancy Reagan on Just Say No and uh, really taking us back in a throwback, which has a really, I think, um, a potential to to set us back considerably um, in in certainly in federal reform. And I, again, I don't think anyone should be surprised. I mean, uh, Jeff Sessions was against sentencing reform when he was a senator, and he was outside of the heartland of his own party in resisting reform. And so now he's attorney general, and so he is pushing uh, an agenda that really is, I think, quite reprehensible and, and frankly has been, these are policies that have been discredited by the right and the left, and they're making a revival now. The hope is uh, that because there's been so much momentum and movement by really thoughtful folks on the right and the left, this has been a bar- bipartisan issue in states around the country, uh, and there's a glimmer of it uh, in, even in in, uh, in Congress, is that that momentum is not going to be slowed down uh, despite what is coming out of this Justice Department. And we'll, that will remain to be seen. I mean, a DOJ at the federal level has the power of the bully pulpit and the power of purse strings outside even of what happens in the federal system to influence state and local systems. But I think that, and now we've seen since he issued his statement, we've seen a lot of conservatives, you know, law enforcement uh, folks, uh, people who have deeply studied criminal justice and who are pushing back against the kind of paradigm that Jeff Sessions is seeking to re-invoke. And we know that the war on drugs just turned into a war on black and brown people. What's so interesting about this is that the data also shows that mandatory minimums don't work, right? So so forcing prosecutors or directing prosecutors to be so aggressive is not something that is going to impact recidivism. It's not a deterrence. Uh, so. So it does seem right. like session has become what we thought he'd be. What were you going to say? Yeah, no, I mean, and you know what's, I mean, federal judges, conservative, progressive, appointed by all presidents have resigned over the, over mandatory minimums, over just this disgust that they were put in positions where uh, to have to kind of enforce a mandatory minimum sentencing regime for for certain folks, mostly almost you know you know exclusively in many instances um, people of color, and again with all of the science, kind of despite it all, um, this memo gets issued, and I think that just stands for what it is. Now you're about to transition uh, and go to so you've already left the DOJ. You were not at the DOJ under this uh, president. And uh, you're transitioning to go to a new job. What's the new job and why does it matter? Sure. You know, I so I left the DOJ January 19th was my last day at the Justice Department. Um, And I am going to be on June 1st, the CEO and president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, which is the nation's largest coalition of uh, civil rights, labor, uh, and faith groups, all with a common mission of ensuring that this country lives up to its ideals, that we are an inclusive and fair and equal country. And it's an organization that's existed for over 67 years. It's in, been involved in the push for every major federal civil rights legislation. But I think also really importantly, because it is a multi-sector coalition 
uh, that brings together, you know, women's rights, immigrants' rights, uh, racial justice, criminal justice reform advocates, labor unions, and um, progressive faith groups. That you know, at this time in particular, I was really eager to go somewhere that was multi-issue, that recognized the intersectionalities of so many of the fights that we have. Uh, but also where at a time when there is such tremendous sense of solidarity uh, among our, our groups and among people who really care about having the kind of America that we deserve in the face of an administration that even in its short time has shown repeatedly that, uh, that it is willing to assault all of the progress that we've made on issue after issue. So this is a time in many ways where the civil rights community, and by that it's a big, it's a big, large, multi-sector community, um, needs to come together and needs to be very active in the resistance against the pushback uh, of the progress that we've made here in D.C., but also needs to be beyond the resistance. I mean, yes, there's a major fight uh, to push back, but I think ultimately we also are in a place time where we have to be strategic and uh, disciplined and focused about how we're building our collective power to ensure that the values that we all, all hold dear are uh, pervasive, are common, and are ultimately going to win. And I believe we're going to win because that's, that is always what the history of this country um, is pointing towards. We, we have not had a linear path to progress, um, and, uh, and we all know that. But the, our progress has also never been inevitable. It has been as a result of people pushing really hard. They're pushing, sometimes it's pushing inside government, sometimes it's pushing in the courts and in the media and on the streets. Um, but we are only going to be the country that we know we deserve through fighting back and ensuring that we are an inclusive and fair nation. And I, I believe we're going to win. There we go. Well, consider you a friend of the pod. And I hope that at some point we can come back or you can come back and we can talk about voting rights and and continue to monitor what's going on with uh, this DOJ. Thanks, Vanita. I would absolutely love to. Thank you, DeRay. There are three shout outs this week. The first is for the eighth graders at South Orange Middle School in South Orange, New Jersey. They refused to take a photo with Paul Ryan during a D.C. trip recently. I would be proud to be their teacher. They clearly understand what's going on. They know what's at stake, and they know uh, that they don't have to be complicit in it. So shout out to those eighth graders and to shout out to any middle schooler anywhere who is resisting in a way that they can. I was a sixth grade teacher. A lot of respect for middle schoolers. The second is for prison culture on Twitter. Prison culture, she is an incredible organizer and abolitionist. She has pushed my thinking around the abolition space and just how to be more thoughtful about social justice, I'd encourage you to check out her timeline on Twitter because I learn from her every day. And the last is a writer. It's Rachel Gansa. Rachel has written a lot of pieces, but she just wrote the cover story in L. It's called How Missy Elliott Became an Icon. I think you should read uh, most of what she's written. She's written so many incredible pieces. You might know her. I first uh, fell in love with her writing when I read the Toni Morrison pieces she did in New York Magazine not too long ago. And recently she just wrote uh, an incredible sort of look at Missy Elliott. So those are the three shout outs. 
for the week. So that's this episode of Pod Save the People. Make sure that you share it. Make sure you tell a friend and make sure that you rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It'd be great if you get it five stars on iTunes. And I look forward to seeing you next week. If you have any feedback, any questions, any comments, definitely hit me up at DeRay at PodSaveThePeople.com. 